Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday, the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Before we begin today's episode, I just want to let everybody know who's out in Ontario and surrounds that I will be a part of the Alice Munro Festival of the Short Story from June 2nd to June 4th. Now, the festival is inspired by one of the greatest storytellers of our time, Alice Munro, and it takes place across Huron County and features workshops, author readings, presentations, performances, and a short story contest. I will be doing a masterclass there on Sunday the 4th, as well as being on a few author panels. I hope to see you there, and if you want to get tickets, go to alicemunrofestival.ca. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Today is a very special one because we are focusing on non-fiction and we have a very special guest joining us today, Tracy Thomas, who is the host of the Stacks podcast. Now those of you who've been listening to the podcast for a while will have heard Tracy on the podcast before. We're huge fans of hers and just a bit of an overview of her podcast. The Stacks is your literary best friend, your virtual book club, your one-stop shop for everything books. Tracy chats with a wide array of guests from film and television stars to community leaders, publishing professionals, and best-selling authors. So if that isn't on your podcast list, it should be. Tracy, welcome to the show. 
Hi, thank you for having me and reading my bio is always so embarrassing. Thank you. <laughs> it's impressive. We never have film stars or TV stars on our show, damn it. So, well, authors are our rock stars. So that's, you know, we we, we fangirl over those. Mine too. Yeah. Mine too. Mine yeah. too. So Tracy, before we begin, will you just tell us why you chose nonfiction as the genre you wanted to focus on today? I know it's a genre you really enjoy. Generally, the books that really speak to me and make me excited are nonfiction. So I thought doing nonfiction would be fun. You know what? It is amazing how much you learn and how discerning you become by reading a particular genre. Mm -hmm. You know, when this is the genre that you love, you know what works, you know what doesn't work. And sometimes just articulating it helps you hone in on on why that is. So for our listeners, we got three queries today. Carly, Cece, and Tracy are each going to read one. They will start off by discussing it, but each is going to chime in on all of the submissions. So you're getting a whole bunch of opinions today, which is always awesome. Carly, will you kick us off with the first query? Absolutely. I'm so excited we're focusing on nonfiction as well. My list as an agent is about 50% fiction, 50% nonfiction. So for me, this is such a joy to be able to dive into that as well. Here is our first query letter. Dear Bianca, Carly, Cecilia, and Tracy, I am excited to pitch my debut 85,000 word creative nonfiction, Free or Less, an unmotherhood memoir for your consideration. It would be a great fit for Carly in particular because of her interest in unique memoirs, lifestyle nonfiction, and narrative nonfiction. I hope you agree. When I find out my best friend is pregnant, grief overshadows any glimmer of joy I feel for her. It's not because I've struggled with infertility or don't have a partner to reproduce with. It's because I thought we would be child-free together. I spiral to the point where I can barely look at a child. My mental health and relationships are brought to the brink of collapse, and I embark on an exploration of societal, familial, and personal pressure peppered with humor, including a fertility clinic road trip with a vial of semen in my armpit. Can I overcome my anguish and salvage my relationships and myself? Join me on my journey from crying on the kitchen floor to testing the waters of becoming a foster parent to hosting a controversial no kids allowed wedding as I attempt to answer the question, is an existence without children free or less? The topic of being child-free by choice is an emerging trend in the wake of Roe versus Wade and Chelsea Handler's recent viral video, A Day in the Life of a Childless Woman. Bodily and reproductive autonomy have never been more important, and personal stories about the political and societal realities are crucial in moving the narrative forward. My story shares similarities with Sheila Hedy's autofiction motherhood, but in a more accessible plot-driven format. There are also parallels with Nell Frizzell's memoir, The Panic Years, which explores her reckoning with the question of children, although ultimately she decides to become a mother. Now that I have fully embraced my decision and reluctantly accepted those of my loved ones, I happily live in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia with my husband and two dogs. I enjoy all the free time a child-free existence creates, reading, writing, cycling, and skiing. I want to thank you for your time and consideration. Please find a list of keywords in my first five pages attached. Should you like to read more, don't hesitate to contact me. Sincerely, Lindsay Harrington. Thank you, Carly. And Lindsay, I too hosted a controversial no children's wedding. So I feel you there because people have strong opinions about that. Okay, so I had a no kids wedding too. I don't think it's controversial. I had a black tie wedding. Kids were not invited. That's it. End of story. I also had a kids free wedding as well. I th- I'm trying to think if it was like official or unofficial, like oh. whether we actually I don't think we actually wrote it. Did you guys write it in the we, ours? In we the had invitation? a 21 and over thing. But I don't know if I wrote it in the invitation. I just if people, I mean, I don't know, your kid wasn't invited. Yeah. It's a wedding. I, like, I, I think I, I think I told people no kids and I, we didn't even have flower girls or, you know, any of that there. And I was just like, but yeah. it did piss off a lot of people. So there you go. Okay, Carly, so will you give us your take on the query letter? 
Absolutely. All right. So this is incredibly interesting. So this is a topic I personally just find incredibly fascinating. Obviously, I love it when things like happen in a, you know, there's plot happening here and it's not solely reflections. That's one of the things I really, really love. So in terms of the actual query letter, you know, I think we could probably do a little bit more with the comps. I wanted to refer you to a great comp, which is a book edited by Megan Dom. It's called Selfish, Shallow, and Self-Absorbed, 16 Writers on the Decision Not to Have Kids. And so this is a really great comp that I would probably recommend putting in place of the Chelsea Handler reference. I, I really, I just feel like, Focusing on book comms is just more useful because I do feel like we have had a lot of conversation in the zeitgeist and obviously in the news and in feminist culture around this topic. So I'm just wondering if you're already preaching to the choir because we already know that this is a topic. So I don't know. I just I worry when we're spending kind of that precious real estate in the query letter on telling us something we already know, whether we actually need to have it in here. So I would probably just paragraphs three and four, just really just try to bring that together and focus on comps. That's my take, but I'm curious what everybody else thinks. I really agree with that, actually. It's sort of to me is like, okay, if you're sending me this letter and you want me to work with you, you have to already have assumed that I'm on the same page with you in some way. And so to me, I was like, okay, I get it. You didn't want to have kids. I don't need the whole like how this is positioned because I'm a smart person who you're interested in working with. The other thing that stuck out to me is that I am approaching this obviously slightly different, but the title of the book as she has it. I wish it was in there a few more times as of her book because I couldn't remember what it was called. And I think that like that should be something that sticks in my brain so that I'm like, oh, right, this one. Like when I got to the end, I was like, what was the name of this one again? Like even if it's not the final title, whatever you think the title should be, I think you should have it in the beginning and the end at the very least. Awesome, Tracy. Thank you. Cece, was there anything you wanted to add to that? I just want to say that I also really love that essay collection. And another good comp for you might be Women Without Kids, The Revolutionary Rise of an Unsung Sisterhood. It came out not too long ago, and I don't know how it's doing. So obviously check that out. But it does have an interesting angle to it. Child-free, I am child-free, for example. So it's something that I very much understand as a human being. There's a difference between being interested in a subject and wanting to read someone's personal journey on that subject. And I always feel like a jerk when I say this because I'm always like, oh, I'm not necessarily interested in your story. But the truth is that not all humans are necessarily interested in every other story out there. You have to make me curious. And I wasn't curious to see what was going to happen based on the way you're framing it. I'm sure there's lots of curiosity inducing things that happened in your life. It's going to be up to you to flesh that out and bring that to the surface and really try to hook me, right? Because I want to be curious. I want to be hooked by your story. Thank you, Cece. Okay, Carly, let's go to the rest of it. Okay, so we have a summary coming up of our opening pages. We are with our main character. She is on the phone with her best friend. The best friend says, I'm pregnant. Then our main character kind of spirals out of control. She's very feeling all of her feelings about her reaction to her best friend's news. Then we find out that the best friend is actually at the hospital and there's some kind of complications potentially with the pregnancy and she's really scared. So the two best friends stay on the phone with each other kind of to coach each other through because this is during COVID and there wasn't support partners allowed in the hospital. So they're on the phone with each other, but this is a lot of introspection about how our main character feels about the journey that they're going on. And then we learn a little bit about kind of the backstory of their friendship, but mostly it's just her reacting to her best friend's news. 
Okay, so my question here is ties into what Cece says on the podcast all the time, that if you can surprise the reader in the opening chapter, you're kind of grabbing them and having your best friend respond in a negative way to this kind of news to me would be surprising. So does it surprise in a way that that grabs the reader? Is it doing the heavy lifting it needs to do? So I am not going to speak for Cece, but I think Cece's going to say yes, because it is out of character from what we imagine somebody and the way that they would react for their best friend. So I I really liked it in the sense of, you know, so she's, the best friend says I'm pregnant. And then there's a couple lines and it says staring at the dirty grout lines between the chipped tiles. And I was like, that's exactly the type of thing that Cece would tell them to do, right? It's like, you're focusing on the specificity of like, this moment is so overwhelming and yet they're staring at something like immovable because they just need to focus on something while they're dealing with this really heavy news. So to me, it felt very real life. So yeah, I, I think I think it passes Cece's check, but I will let I will let Cece speak. Okay, Cece, what did you think? Okay, so this is all true. I I really like that we were immersed in scene. I really like that we were inside her head. I liked all these things because it's me and because apparently I can't stop giving people notes. I think two things. One, the emotional calibration felt off. She got the news that her friend is pregnant, okay? And immediately her thought was, Ronnie's on a train I will never board on her way to a destination where I will never live, motherhood. First of all, great writing. That needs to move to the end of that scene, not the beginning. The first thought is not going to be about the train. That's not realistic. You know, no one, not even a poet has that brain. Your first thought's going to be something else. And I don't need to see the literality of your thought. I just need to feel the visceral emotion. The visceral emotion is probably going to be shock. I thought it was going to be shock, but then later her friend tells me that she was trying. So I don't even know if it's shock. Maybe it's more like horror because you were expecting it. Like you had dread before, you know, I really like that she is essentially being honest about her feelings, but also kind of chastising herself. Not that she should, but that's what we do. So that's that's good interiority. I really like that. I do, however, think that there's very little on the world. One thing that I always talk about, especially with memoir, is your thoughts can't just be about what's happening on the page. Your thoughts need to have more texture. So she talks about Paul, her friend's husband. I have no information on whether she likes Paul or not. You know, like, like I don't even have a, a line like, yeah, sure. Maybe she thinks Paul's really hot, for example. So, so she, maybe she would think something like, yeah, Paul has great genes, but do they have to reproduce? Or maybe she doesn't think that about Paul. I don't know. I guess I wanted more specificity on their lives. I don't know that this is starting in the right place. I don't know that a phone call is the way to do it. It sounds, it's, it's, it's too quiet. Is it, is it, it, it wasn't even surprising to me, to be perfectly honest, because I wasn't, I wasn't surprised by her reaction. I, I knew her reaction was going to be that because of the query letter, which which is fair because people read the pitch copy on the back of books. I think the interiority was well done. The emotionality can can be calibrated. I I needed. I don't know. I think I think that you're not starting in the right place. I don't know what the right place would be. Yeah. To to me, it kind of felt like a play that was really rehearsed. You know, it was like this writer had thought about everything they were going to say in these opening pages, and they're like, "Now's my chance to sparkle and do my little jazz hands." And it's like it is really well written. But I think that's what Cece's getting at is like, is it clinical? Is it is it actually surprising? Is it exactly what we expected? It's unexpected in expected ways, I think is a is play that's really well rehearsed. That's what it is. That's what it is. And good job, by the way, because it's hard to do a play that's well rehearsed, but it's not hitting, you know, it's not hitting with the visceral emotion for me. Tracy, what do you think? I totally agree. For me, I felt like the writer was trying to shock us by how unlikable air quotes she thinks that she is because of her feelings about 
not wanting to have children in a way that sort of we were talking about with the query letter that it's like, okay, but the people who are picking up this book, like they're at least interested in this topic. Like you don't have to berate yourself if you don't want to have kids. I think there's a lack of vulnerability in this that is what makes the shock not resonate. And I, I also think like no one's going to be shocked that you're upset with your friend being pregnant if the book is about you not wanting to have kids. Like that's if that's what we're starting with, like I don't know that that's a shock. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for, to all of you for that. Tracy, we're now going to move on to the second query letter. Will you read that for us, please? Yes, I will. This one comes from Trinity Clemens Clark. Dear Carly, Cece, Bianca, and guest, I hope you will consider my memoir, Birthmarks, one of the first mom books written by a Black Gen Z author. Similar instruction to Linnea Negra, an essay on pregnancy and earthquakes, and similar in tone to Emma Chamberlain's conversational podcast, this is complete at 57,000 words. Being a woman of color living in a small, non-diverse Ohio town, I knew the odds were stacked against me, but I never expected to be one of those odds. My world crashed down when I gave birth at 33 weeks and the doctors didn't give any answers to why. After living in a NICU for 25 days, our son came home on oxygen and I blame myself for my newborn suffering. As a stay-at-home mother, of a preemie baby, I continued to trust my doctor and her advice that exclusively breastfeeding is a natural contraceptive. Only a few months later, I was pregnant again, hesitant yet determined to fight for my second chance at womanhood and motherhood, still believing that the first trauma was a fluke in my system, not in the broken U.S. healthcare system. Birthmarks is a refreshingly authentic story about the journey from womanhood to motherhood. This book sheds light on what women, especially women of color, experience in the U.S. healthcare system. I hope young women can avoid similar traumas, and my story gives fellow moms the courage to share their birthmarks so we can leave shame behind and create change. I am a stay-at-home mom who continues to seek out resources to help me become a stronger writer. I have completed Tommy Adiemi's Writer's Roadmap course, was accepted into Futurescape's Writer's Virtual Workshop 2023, and am a member of SCBWI. You can find me soaking up the California sun, writing my work in progress, and singing Disney songs with my kids. Can I send you my full manuscript? Warm regards, Trinity Clemens Clark. Awesome, Tracy. Thank you. Okay, so can you give us your take on that? Yes. Interesting to have another book about motherhood so closely tied. I have to admit, I read these queries back to back. So I think a little of that is trickling into my response. So I just want to give that slight disclaimer because I know that's not exactly fair. I think that this book maybe sounds interesting. However, I... I just finished reading Taylor Harris's book, This Boy We Made, that sounds almost identical to this. So it's a perfect comp. She's technically not a Gen Z author, but she's a younger millennial Black woman who's living in Charlottesville, Virginia, and dealing with an undiagnosed health issue with her son. And she has a child before, and then she has another child after. So like so much of this feels like something I've already read. So as I was reading that query letter, I thought that. The other thing is, and this is just a personal pet peeve as a Black woman, I really don't like when people say women of color when you mean Black women, especially in the case of maternal fetal health, because we know that that disproportionately affects Black women in America. It does affect women of color, but it is something that is aggressively like double the rates of other of white women and I think like 
you know, a quarter more than than Latina women. And so I think like say black when you mean black. That's okay. Stand in that because that is true of your story. And it's more powerful when you do that. And I would love some more comps because I didn't even get the name of the pod. I don't know who Emma Chamberlain is. So I don't even know what her conversational podcast is. Okay. Cece, did you have anything you wanted to add to the critique? So I really like Jasmina Barrera Velasquez. She is, however, a force. And this is a book in translation, Linea Negra. So I think you need different comps. This is not to be harsh. This is to be realistic. When you use comps in nonfiction, you have to use comps by authors that are in a similar space as you are. So for example, if you won a Nobel Prize, you can use a comp by an author who also won the Nobel Prize. That is fair. If you have not, then using a Nobel Prize comp might not be super realistic. And there are nuances and exceptions to the whole conversation. But I think I definitely think you need two book comps for this. And it should be comps written by people who are in the same space that you are when they wrote the book too, right? Because if they won the award after they wrote the book, after the book came out, that's still totally fair as well. It's just something that I really, really have to explain to people all the time when I'm critiquing nonfiction submissions. They tell me, well, I don't know, Chelsea Handler wrote a book about this. And I'm like, I know, but she's Chelsea Handler. And I want that for you too. I also want you to be Chelsea Handler, right? We need more Chelsea Handlers in the world. But I'm sorry, if you're not at that stage in your life, it just doesn't make any sense. Thank you, Cece. Colleague? Yeah, it's so funny having two motherhood projects back to back. So obviously, like, that's infusing the conversation. I, I feel I have so many mixed feelings about books about motherhood. I like to work on them. I like to read them as, as a consumer. And yet, again, how are we moving the conversation forward is always my first question. With this one, um, her being a Black Gen Z author, I'm like, awesome. We do not have enough books by Black Gen Z authors. Love it. You know, we have a lot of books by white moms. Too many, if you ask me, right? So I think I, I love that this person is trying to move into that space. And, and I, again, I, I just think that's that's awesome. I just worry. I worry about all these books about motherhood, again, if we're not moving the conversation forward. So I think, again, this is just my agent brain working here. But if this book is going to, because I made a note here, like how much, are, so how much like data and research are we going to put into this, right? Because we know that there's going to be some information about the health and the preemie and the NICU stuff. I'm like, if this is going to be like what we call Memoir Plus, and if you don't know about Memoir Plus, take Lee Stein's course on Memoir Plus, because it's great. But that's kind of a way to infuse a bit more like narrative or reporting or journalism. And again, moving the conversation forward, having some kind of touch points um, for for kind of future press and publicity. You know, I'm, tr I'm trying to think down the line, right? Like, how does this book make a real impact and a real difference? And those are some of the things on on my mind. But I, I think we need a lot more books by Black Gen Z mothers. And and I really hope that we can move, move more into that space because I, I've read enough white mom books. Thank you, Carly. <laughs> Tracy, will you give our listeners an indication of what was in those uh, opening pages? Yeah. So it starts with our writer and her husband talking and he's telling her that she's pregnant and she's like, I'm not pregnant. And then she goes and like runs an errand or something. And then she gets some pregnancy tests and then she's pregnant. And that's pretty much where this ends. Okay. So what well, was your take on that as an opener? I don't think it was strong for me because I think the whole like peeing on a pregnancy stick and then being surprised and then showing like setting up a little scene for your husband to be like, we're pregnant is 
that's a sentence for me. That's not five pages. Like that's a paragraph at most. We've just seen it so many times in television, in on Instagram, in books. Like to me, it was just a little like pedestrian. I don't know if that's right, but it's just a comment maybe. I don't know. So for me, I would have liked to just like start there. I'm pregnant. Whoa. <laughs> Peed on two sticks. And then let's get into the story a little bit. What makes it special? And to the Gen Z point, nothing in the query letter besides that one sentence or in the first pages let me know how this woman was a Gen Z mom. There was nothing about it that rang different than she could have been a boomer mom for all I for all I know, given the she peed on two pregnancy sticks, didn't think she was pregnant and found out she was like there was not and there was nothing that said that she was black either. There was nothing that said to me, this is a different version of the same story. It just read like the exact same story. So yeah. Awesome, Tracy. Thank you. Carly, your take? All right. I feel like there's such a juxtaposition happening here and I don't know if it's intentional. So I'm gonna I don't know. I'm I'm gonna pull you guys and see if these if you guys think this is intentional. So we have the husband saying, I'm telling you, uh, Earn a slurp to cereal milk, you're pregnant. And so I am so confused by like, if this is, he's in, she is presenting him as intentionally juvenile by this like slurping of the milk and like eating cereal. I'm like, I'm a cereal lover and I love cereal, but I'm like, am I going to be like slurping my milk? It's just, I just couldn't wrap my head around the fact that this was intentionally infantilizing or intentionally childish for her to be like, I'm going to become a mom. And I'm I also taking care of my husband in a in a maternal way. I don't know. I was just blown away by I'm like, is this intentional? Is it not intentional? Are we trying to foreshadow something about him being immature? I really was having I was really trying to wrap my head around that element of it. So I'm curious what you guys think. I made some notes of some lines that I really liked, but absolutely we need to cut the peeing on a stick bit because again, it's like we common sense at this point. There was a line I really liked, and again, this could encompass so much of what's going on when we cut it but she had a line that says I inhaled the whole earth obsessed with that line amazing line right and it's so it's like that encompasses that can encompass everything you figure out the information it's like I inhaled the whole earth like wow like that is a sentence you know and so so much of this I'm like we trim we trim we trim and there are good lines in here I think we're just over telling you know to me this is like a bit more journal entry and a little less kind of representative of like storytelling than I want it to be. Can I just say something really quickly about the I inhaled the whole earth? I highlighted that. I made a note and I said, this is a sentence. This is explosive. Let's start here. And that's it. That's it. Peed on a stick, saw the result, inhaled the whole earth. Let's get to the story. Like we don't, you did it. You did it in a sentence. Like congratulations to you. I'm with you now. I will go with you at least for 50 pages off the if you start your book there and give me another good paragraph, like that's it. Amazing. Yeah. And you know what? For the writers out there, don't be discouraged because remember, you need to write all of that to find those golden nuggets, right? You write all of that, you find the golden nuggets, and then you condense, 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 right? It's like you put pressure on your words to turn them into diamonds. Okay. And that's, that's pretty much where we're going with this. Cece, your take on that? I typically critique memoir thinking that it's fiction because a good memoir should read like fiction. And if I was talking to this author and she had written this novel, I'd be like, I don't believe that this happened, that this would happen. And I know it did, but like, I don't believe that he told her that she was pregnant. And then after two weeks of him saying this, 
she finally asked, why do you think I'm pregnant? That's not believable. That didn't happen. Like I have to talk to this author and be like, come on, what actually happened? Just tell me the truth. Why are you framing it like this? And maybe, maybe she's the kind of person who like will not take the bait, but then I need her interiority to tell me that, you know, like I've been resisting the urge to ask for two weeks, but finally I just have to know, you know, something like that. There's also something that, that was really interesting at the end, at the very last page, almost at the very end. It's crazy because we just talked about how we were fine not having kids. And I didn't think I needed to have kids. And now I'm possibly pregnant. So that line is kind of a huge deal in terms of where she is in her life. And I think that that should have been discussed sooner, including in her head, because we're in her head. So I think you're bearing in the lead a little bit with that one. Yeah, in terms of the believability, I 100% believe that that is how it happened. But because you're not giving us the interiority to explain why it happened in that way, that is when plausibility issues crop up. So all we need is a few sentences to give us, you know, your headspace, why you approached it in this way. Maybe it's your personality. Maybe you were just, you know, in denial, maybe whatever the case may be is. But if you give us that contextualized approach to it, then the reader does not have plausibility issues. And remember, it's not paragraphs and paragraphs. Sometimes it's just a well-placed line or two that'll do that for you. Okay, Cece, will you read us the last query letter? Hi, Tracy, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. I am a big fan of the shit no one tells you about writing podcast and was so excited to see that you're offering a special segment on nonfiction queries. One in six million, how the genealogist solved the mystery of the baby in the ditch is a researched nonfiction story about a baby found in a ditch and the man who figured out where she came from 73 years later. The mystery starts in 1942 Poland when baby Maria was discovered wrapped in a blanket by the side of the road. A childless couple found her, took her home to Siberia, and raised her as their own. For decades, Maria wondered if she was Jewish and if her birth parents left her by the road instead of taking her with them to certain death. When her adopted parents passed away and the Iron Curtain fell, Maria searched fruitlessly. Until Stanley Diamond got wind of the case. Stanley Diamond, our sleuth, is the 85-year-old amateur genealogist who searched for Maria's family, ultimately locating her real name, true birthday, and over 100 of her cousins. Because I tell it with a light touch, the story is easy to digest. A feel-good mystery, yet recognizing the pain and suffering that the Holocaust brought to so many. As I tell my writing group every week, Holocaust humor? It's a niche. The manuscript is halfway complete at 35,000 words. I anticipate having a full by October 2023. I will be graduating with my MFA in less than a month, and this is my third book. I sold 2,500 copies of my first, The Art of Complaining Effectively, out of my purse and the trunk of my car. My second book, I Wanted Fries With That, How to Ask for What You Want and Get What You Need, earned out the first advance in the first quarter and has had a decent backlist performance despite all the typical pandemic-related distribution problems we all know so much about. When I'm not writing, you might find me at my day job as um, uh, I can't can't pronounce this word. At my day job at Concordia University, spending time with my husband or one of my three grown kids, or feeding my betta fish psycho. Ooh, fun name. I have a complete proposal to share with you that includes three sample chapters. Looking forward to talking to you more about this project. Best, Amy. Thanks, Cece. Okay, what was your take on that? This is our, I guess, our only non-memoir, right? So there's a lot to discuss in terms of what the expectations are with narrative nonfiction. Um, first, I think you be, should be more specific about the genre. I, I'm supposing it is narrative nonfiction. You, you tell me. 
we definitely need comps. Like we definitely, definitely, definitely need comps. Um, so go go out and find those. Call our line if you if you're in need of help. I guess I was curious when Maria started searching how old she was. I think that's an easy thing to include. Maria at the age of X starts searching. It's a detail, but I was I was curious. The hook is very interesting. I do wonder if there is room for an entire book. This is something that is a huge challenge with nonfiction. You have to justify why something's going to be a full book and not a really cool article or a really cool podcast or a really cool essay or I don't know, something else. I don't know that I see enough for a book and it doesn't mean that there isn't. It just means that I'm not quite sure. Um, I would definitely keep reading to see the overview because I would be curious. You will not need the full manuscript if this is nonfiction. So you're saying it's halfway complete and you expect to have the full complete. You can do that if you want, but it will be sold on proposal. So you should be working on your proposal. Um, that's, that's, I think, what I would focus on, right? Like summarizing every chapter that you're going to write, author bio, target audience. And then I think my final note, which might be, in my opinion, the, the one that at least I was most curious about is with nonfiction, part of what we expect to understand is why are you the right person to write this book? Like, why you? And this is not a challenge. This is a curiosity. Like, I am curious. Why you? Tell us why you. Um, and there wasn't there wasn't anything on that. And I'd really like to know. Um, what original research have you done on the subject? Who have you spoken to? Why is this near and dear to your heart? Why you? This is something that I don't think anyone who represents nonfiction wouldn't be asking. Yeah. Thank you, Cece. Okay, Tracy. I have to tack on to that. Yeah, because I think that's a really important point. Why you... But especially when you're saying that your book is Holocaust humor, I that was I I am Jewish and that was very like <gasps> moment for me. And when you're sending something out into the world and you don't necessarily know who's reading it, maybe maybe it is Holocaust humor, maybe it is a niche, maybe it's funny. But like that to me was very off putting, and you don't want to be doing something like that without knowing who your audience is necessarily. And so I think the why you would maybe make sense of that line because I don't know you. And so like, I don't know that I think the Holocaust is funny. So you have to tell me why you why you could find humor in that and how you could find humor in that. And that's going to come from maybe something in your background um, because it it's definitely like a moment as you're reading through that query letter. Um, I, I also said that I, I need comps. I also feel like with Holocaust stories, my question is always, why are we telling this story? Why now? Um, because there are so many Holocaust stories and there are so many stories of people whose families were separated and who weren't able to connect with their families or were. And so I wonder why this is why this story, why now again, why you? And then, um, the other thing that I said was that the I, I maybe this is again my not writer brain, the whole paragraph about all of the things that you've written and and the sent like all of the COVID of it all and whatever. I think that could be tightened up because I'm much more interested in the why this story, why you, what is it? You know, like the who, what, where, when, and why of this book is far more interesting. Of course, keep in that you've written other things, but like I don't need a whole like jokey moment on it too. Thank you, Tracy. Okay, Carly. All right, I'm going to start at the top. So I find this I find this title incredibly tough. The mystery of the baby in the ditch. I'm I'm going to be honest with you. Not a lot of people are going to pick it up based on that title. Um, that's a really tough title. I honestly thought the baby was dead. I thought I was reading a book about a dead baby, and like, yeah, I'm like, <laughs> you got to prepare people for that. Um, right. So I don't really find out until a few few 
lines later, almost a couple paragraphs later, that this child was found, not only just left in it, the baby was found, hooray. I was like, oh my God, I can breathe again. Thank God. Um, so that was very important to me to know about what was going to happen to this baby. Um, you know, I almost feel like it, this could potentially be positioned as true crime if we're looking for angles and approaches, right? Um, most importantly is why are you the one telling the story? That's the biggest thing here. Because I can see this as if I can see this as a whole book if you are inserting yourself into the narrative of like, how did you find Stanley Diamond? How did you f find this story? How did you decide? And what's going on in terms of, again, we need character arcs for everybody, linear arcs for everybody. So how did you kind of come into the story and learn to tell it? Um, how is this affecting you? Is this causing trouble in your marriage? Is this causing trouble in your family by you having to dig in and do this research? You know what I'm trying to say? Like, I'm trying to create you an arc that doesn't exist and it needs to exist. Um, and that is really going to, again, tie all this together in a way that I think Think is interesting for everybody the line about um you know for decades maria wondered if she was jewish if her birth parents left her by the road instead of taking her with her uh with them to a certain death i was like wow holy shit that's really really powerful and sad and emotional so i can see how like this could be a real roller coaster of a book um Again, the why now would be, again, why does this person have to tell this story? And that's how we could bring that lens together. So I can see this coming together. To me, it was just like this was pitched to us too early. Not only are they writing this whole book, I have a feeling they're writing this whole book to figure out what this book is. And really in nonfiction, we don't need to do that. We need to write a proposal to figure out what this book is. And then you go off and write the book because you're making changes based on an agent or an editor and how they're going to shape this and pull it all together. So I feel like we're just in the exploratory stage, um, which is fine. But again, just a teensy bit too early for us to be able to help I think in a way that could be useful we're also missing the comps and again like if you're going off and writing a whole book you're going to mirror the structure after something so even if we don't have an exact comp we need a tonal comp we need a structure comp um so and I would also say lastly um you're apologizing for your sales you're apologizing twice you're apologizing kind of for like selling them kind of out of your purse slash trunk and then you're apologizing for COVID so no apologizing about sales that needs to be trimmed right out Thank you, Carly. Okay, Cece, what was in uh, the rest of it? So this is, I think, the first time, no, not the first time, the second time that we've reviewed an overview. So an overview is not something that the reader will will read. Usually we're reviewing first pages, which is just like us walking inside a Barnes and Nobles and picking up a book and starting to read the book, right? Like this is different. The overview is something for the agent, for the acquisitions editor, for the sales team. It's supposed to tell us what this book is about, why now, you know, why you, what's the paradigm shift, all that good stuff. And this starts in scene. It starts with um, uh, the reader being prompted to imagine Maria's mother having to leave her, having to do this incredibly difficult thing is an understatement. And then it shifts to, well, and but Stanley um, is, 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 is going to fix it. Um, not fix it, sorry. Stanley is going to come to the rescue, I suppose, and, fi and, and solve the mystery. Um, and we have a little bit of Stanley's background. And then on page three, it starts kind of reading like an overview more. Um, we have a line like, one in six million follows Stanley's quest to uncover Maria's true identity. Um, then it starts sounding a little bit more like an overview. There's, so, so essentially that is what happens. We get an overview of the book. Okay, Cece, and, and your take on that? My first note is you have got to get this down to three pages. It's not that an overview can't be five pages. It can, but you don't need the five pages here. I, I promise you, you don't. I know you think you do, but I promise you, you don't. Because there's a lot of detail that you are 
not wasting because that's not the word, but you're misplacing. We don't need to see your beautiful, beautiful uh, storytelling ways in the overview. Save that for the sample chapter. The sample chapter is going to shine. We're going to be so excited to be reading the sample chapter. So that's my first note. My second note is, and this is a matter of taste. The humor for me didn't land. I will give you an example. Um, there's a mention about how Stanley is an unknown hero, like the man who invented the car windshield wipers or the woman who invented the wet Swiffer mop. I, I, I didn't, I didn't, wasn't, I wasn't offended by it. I wasn't hurt by it. it it's, it's nothing that, 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 that deep. It's more like it, it didn't think it fit, you know, like I, it wasn't, it, it wasn't landing for me, for my taste. And I guess you're promising me a funny book. So the humor should land. But again, you don't have to make me laugh in the overview. Like that's not where the humor belongs. So maybe save your humor for the sample pages and maybe they will make it will make more sense then. Also about the scene in the beginning, because I know a lot of people want to start with scene. They're, they, they're storytellers. They love that. We know that it's August 1942 and the Jews in Krosno, Poland were loaded onto a train for the Belzec extermination camp. This is set to us. And we know that Maria's mother boarded without Maria and left her baby behind. Okay. And then there's a line that says, and not in the arms of a beloved aunt or favorite babysitter, not with a bulletin board full of emergency numbers and a freezer full of lasagna. She left her baby on the side of a road with the note pinned to her blanket all alone. The not with the favorite babysitter line would only land with the surprise and realigning of the brain that I think you're going for. Maybe I'm wrong. If we didn't know about the 1942 situation. So if you started this with, in, on an August day, a mother left her baby alone. Or, or a mother left her baby alone for the first time, maybe. I don't know. Whatever it could be. And then not with the babysitter. not. And then I find out that we're in 1942 Poland. Then I go, oh, that's why. But because I already know we're in 1942 Poland, it's not surprising. Because I know there wouldn't be a babysitter, right? Like, I know that that would never be a situation. So the not with the lasagna freezer, not with the babysitter, it didn't, it didn't land with the surprise that I think you're hoping to land. And it can if you just realign the order. So yeah, those are my notes. Thank you, Cece. Tracy? Cece's so spot on. I think that what I can say is still that there's too many tonal shifts in this. This should be, if this is your overview, I don't think you need a scene and an explanation and a this and a that. I think you have to just decide this is how I'm pitching the overview of this book and just give it to me straight because the the switching back and forth, even if you know it's an overview, it still feels like a lot to kind of pull off in such a short amount of space. You know, there's a lot of, there were a lot of lines that jumped out at me as just like a little too, too cute by half for me like the lasagna thing again didn't land for me there's a line about like and where was the dad and I'm like well I don't know had he already been taken away like I don't know that we can be mad mad at the dad for not being there like this is the scene that you have us sitting in is sort of like we're not talking about an absentee father we're talking about the Holocaust, you know, so like those little lines that I think are supposed to be maybe jokey or cute or funny. I don't know that they're reading like that out of context of the book. So if it's sample pages, maybe we get that sense. But if it's just an overview, maybe you have to leave the jokiness aside for now. Thanks, Tracy. Okay, Kali. All right. So I don't have, you know, too much to add. I agree with everything that everybody has already said. So I'm just going to summarize. I pulled up my, if anybody's taken my nonfiction course, webinar course that I've taught, I give you guys a template. So I'm going to read you my template points for the overview. And this is what we should be covering. So 
number one, platform, leading with platform. You know, we haven't talked too much about platform, even though this is a nonfiction segment. But if this person, for example, wrote an article for the Walrus or Texas Monthly on this topic, right? It could be a launch pad for them to go, then go and write about this book, you know, go and write this book. So that's something you, this, this person might want to think about. Next point is why this book? We talked about that. Why now? We talked about that. Why are you the right author to write it? And this is the piece that I still don't no, is what is your connection to this heritage? What is your what is your connection to this story? How did you stumble across it? That's a big thing for me. My next point is, what does the market say about this topic right now? Is there a gap? Tell us quickly how you will access it, but save the big details for later. And so we don't even have a lot of comps here, anything from, you know, Holocaust or, you know, Jewish family reuniting type of comps. Like we don't have any of those comps. So this is a big, the, the whole gap in the market piece is a huge thing that's missing here. Paradigm shift, CC mentioned that, but really it's, it's this concept concept of, I'll break it down for you, that readers go into the book thinking X and they leave the book thinking Y. And if this author is going to be a character in this book, they need to then take that arc as well. And they also need to have an arc like that. So those are the main points that I want this person to focus on. And everybody listening, if you are going to be writing an overview for a nonfiction proposal, those are your points. Thank you so much. Right. So Tracy, thank you so much for joining us as a special guest today. We really, really appreciated your input. Carly and Cece, as per usual, thank you so much for for your consideration of this and now it's time to go to today's guest we just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten i cannot believe it one of the tricky things about my kids being in french immersion school and not having french as a language myself is i'm honestly worried about how i'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger they're young now but i see it coming we are honestly so lucky though to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends so i know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 
language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Are you ready to finish the exact book you've always wanted to write on exactly your own terms? The Mindset to Finish Your Book is a nine-month personalized one-on-one coaching series where you'll learn to trust your writer brain, claim your creative vision, and become a leader in your own life. You'll learn the most transformative tools of life coaching and how to apply them to your life as a writer. Because you and your book are not a closed system. You, your book, your partner, your children, your day job, your agent, your editor, and your health are an ecosystem. And we need to nurture all of these relationships for you to thrive. Learn more and download your free workbook at MindsetToFinishYourBook.org. Through this guide, you will learn how to fall back in love with your creative vision the very next time you sit down to write. Today's guest is a writer and editor who runs the company WordLift. When she's not scrutinizing copy, she can be found stocking her free neighborhood library, challenging anyone to a dance-off, or stewing over how Portlandia stole all of her jokes. She's hard at work on her next novel, Champions for Breakfast, which will also be published by Zibby Books. She's a corn-fed Nebraska girl who now lives in a quaint New England town with her husband and two kids. It's my pleasure to welcome Meg Tady. Meg, welcome to the show. Bianca, thank you so much for having me. This is a really thrilling and surreal experience to be on the show that I have listened to for years. What feels like a full circle moment for me is that you submitted work to us in 2021. We discussed it on the podcast. Prior to that, you were in some of my classes. And so it is thrilling for me to be holding your book in my hand, to know it is coming out, because I know how bloody hard you've worked on this, Meg. That is the thing. You know, the listeners out there, we we go, oh, this author's had success and we see their success, but we don't see all of the many, many drafts, the many versions, all the revisions that go into making a book a success. So can you just talk about that for a second? Yeah. I mean, this this book took eight years, eight long years. And when I first started it, I, you know, I did a quick draft and I was like, I'm going to send this to agents and I'm going to rock their world. They're going to receive this manuscript and they're going to like just run out into the hallway, just like, oh my God, she's here. And I heard crickets and I realized I had a lot to learn and it was super humbling. And I think we often just as a culture, you know, we celebrate the success stories 
and the really overnight success stories that we often are bombarded with. And we don't realize that this is a total grind for most people. And that's what it was for me. And I had to, to learn a lot along the way. And I turned to you and your podcast for help. And it, it really was super helpful. Thank you for that, Meg. But honestly, it was you. It was all you. Because here's the thing. I tell people all the time that in my writing classes, I was certainly not the most talented person in those classes, but I was certainly the most stubborn and I was the most bloody well determined to make sure that I got published. And that's why I worked and worked and worked and revised and worked until I got to the point where I could get it published. And I feel like you've done exactly the same because so many writers give up along the way. They're just like, it's just too hard. It's too frustrating. I'm going to give up. And, you know, it's it's the tenacity and the hard work that gets you here. Right. So our listeners have been requesting something. So we're trying something different today. You will have noticed we did it a few weeks ago as well. And we really want to hear from you what you think of this new format. We're thinking of combining Books with Hooks with our author segments, having the author review your query letters and your submission while we discuss their books at the same time. And uh, yeah, tweet us, reach out on social media, let us know what you think. Most importantly, you as our listeners have said, we want to hear successful query letters. So we're starting to ask authors to please read us their query letters for the novels that they got published. So Meg, will you kick us off with reading us the query letter for Superbloom? I will. Dear Agent, I'm impressed with your eye for wickedly funny and tender fiction, and I'm hoping that my upmarket commercial fiction novel Superbloom might interest you. Complete at 79,000 words, Superbloom balances humor and heart, similar to Laura Zygmunt's Separation Anxiety and Emily Henry's Beach Read and its quirky cast of characters will appeal to viewers binge-watching Ted Lasso. Massage therapist Joan Johnston doesn't want to touch another back. She's wallowing in grief over the death of her boyfriend Samuel, and her bad attitude is jeopardizing her spa job and her friendships. A new client, famous novelist Carmen Bronze, has a proposition for Joan. She'll give Joan a glowing review to impress her boss if Joan will funnel dirt about the spa to Carmen, where she wants to set her next bestseller. The task reawakens a dormant talent in Joan, and she wonders if she can write her way out of grief. Telling the love story she lost is too painful. The answer, she believes, is writing the love story she wishes she'd had, one with a happy ending starring fictional characters as stand-ins for herself and Samuel. Soon, instead of helping Carmen, Joan begins hoarding the best stories about the spa for her own novel, feeding Carmen fake research. As Joan's heart reopens to unlikely friendships and a new possible love match, she drops accidental clues to expose her deceit. When Carmen discovers and claims Joan's book as her own, Joan must summon the courage to fight for her work or risk losing the fictional world that helped her heal. A motley crew of friends help her hatch an audacious plan to rescue her handwritten book and ultimately lay claim to her own voice. Named for an explosion of wildflowers in a desert following years of drought, Super Bloom is about surmounting grief and discovering dormant talents. I'm a professional writer and editor running the company WordLift. I was a finalist for the 2021 Penguin Random House Canada Student Fiction Award, and I was long listed for the Mislexia Novel Prize. Early pages of another novel were long listed for the Blue Pencil Agency's 2020 Pitch Prize. I live in Massachusetts with my husband and two young children. 
Thank you for your time and consideration. Awesome, Meg. Thanks for sharing that with us. I absolutely loved the comps there. I loved the way the plot was set up. And I loved that you gave the description for the title because not everybody would know what Super Bloom means. And as soon as you give that, we understand that the title is a metaphor for what this character is going through. So all of it's in there. It's a phenomenal query letter. So yeah, thank you so much for sharing it with us. How many times did you have to write and rewrite it? I I have no idea. I think if I counted, I would be really depressed. I mean, I tweaked that thing so many times. As I went to, to pull it back up for you, I just saw so many different versions, you know, <laughs> over the years. And the story also changed over the years as I sharpened it and as I sharpened my own skills. So it took a really long time. Yeah, and I've said before on the podcast that I'd rather write 10 novels than one query letter. So I feel the pain of authors when it when it comes to query letters, boy. Okay, so before we discuss your, your own work, which is absolutely amazing, which I have adored, and which I can't wait for all of our listeners to read, let's go to the query letter that you're going to be assessing today. Will you read that for us? Okay, I will. Dear Carly and Cece, thank you for choosing my query to critique. I am a big fan of the podcast. That being said, I hope you will find interest in my 70,000 word contemporary romance, Home for the Holiday. It will appeal to fans of the cozy, familial atmosphere in a holidays by Christina Lauren and the captivating, powerful second chance romance of every summer after by Carly Fortune. There's no place like home for the holidays, and for Hayden Marks, home is a place with an anxiety-inducing mother, a father who makes her worry more than anyone else, and two siblings with shadows so enormous she had to move cross-country to escape them. Why she chooses now to celebrate Thanksgiving with them after five years away is as clear as the bottle of Merlot she drained the night she purchased her plane ticket. Ever since he was a kid, Ryan Joseph was closer with the Marks family than he was his own. It was only natural that he would end up falling for their youngest daughter, Hayden. But the last time Ryan and Hayden spoke, egos were wounded and hearts were left damaged beyond repair. Ryan knows he's part of the reason why Hayden stopped coming home. Reuniting with his first and only love is not something he's particularly thankful for this year. Old wounds begin to heal as Hayden is coerced into participating in family traditions and getting to know Ryan all over again. As their bond intensifies, Hayden remembers that with love comes pain, and none of what they experience over the weekend can be permanent. Not the longing stares, the not-so-innocent brushing of hands, and absolutely not the heart-achingly perfect kisses. Hayden doesn't know if she can survive the holiday with her heart intact, especially when all she needs and the last thing she wants are one and the same. A little about me. I live in Rhode Island with my prodding, loud, Syrian-Italian family. When I am not creating excuses to evade them, I am teaching elementary school or playing with my dog. Amazing, Meg. Thank you. Okay, will you give us your take on that query letter? Yeah, so first of all, I love the premise, and I think her comps are spot on. They're they're great. And I, I love the idea of someone not wanting to come home for the holidays, but being pulled anyway, and then, you know, seeing a former love. I think that there are some places where where we can 
make this a little bit stronger. This idea of, you know, why she's choosing to celebrate Thanksgiving after five years away. Five years is a really long time to not be home. So I actually think we need to explain a little bit about why she's made the decision to come home after all this time. You know, maybe there's like a secret buried in there, but I think an agent is going to want to know why she's made that decision. I also, in the third paragraph describing Ryan Joseph, it makes me wonder if this is dual POV and if we're going to be getting, you know, alternating chapters with his POV. I think for me, it's not, it's not necessarily natural that he would fall in love with Hayden, you know, so I don't, I don't know if that line is working. And it's also unclear whether Ryan, you know, is falling for Hayden, but it's, it's unclear whether Hayden is also falling for Ryan. So I think we need to make, she needs to make that a little clearer. Do they have this really passionate, you know, love affair? Does the family know? Do they keep it hidden? What's really going on there? It's also by the fourth paragraph that starts with old wounds begin to heal. We still haven't been told that actually they're both at Thanksgiving together. Unbeknownst to both of them, they've come for this Thanksgiving meal and they're both there. I only know that from the pages. So I think that the author can make that clear right from the get-go, that this setup, I think she can make this, you know, quite easy to understand. The setup is Hayden hasn't been home for a while for whatever reason and lay out that reason. She gets home to her family who's very annoying and at Thanksgiving dinner is this person she hasn't seen in years who was a former love of hers who sort of drove her away. So I would just work on just tweaking that and making that much clearer for the agent and I, I thought, you know, the, the part about a little about me that you, she could bolster that a little bit. She could even name the dog. She could just add a few more little tidbits that an agent might want to know who that would kind of endear her to people learning a little bit more about her. Wonderful, Meg. Thank you. What do you think about the stakes? Do you think those are clear enough in the query letter? Do you think those can be upped a bit as well? I definitely think those can be upped a bit. We don't know what is Hayden possibly losing by coming home? What is it that she's having to run away from? You know, she had to run away from home, but now it seems like she's running away from something from where she lives. So we we don't have a real sense of, of what is hanging in the balance for her making that decision, you know, home versus home. And we also don't know what's hanging in the balance for her if she starts to fall for Ryan again. And we don't know what's hanging in the balance for Ryan either. You know, the stakes aren't clear. We just, you know, I think she kind of alludes to the bond, intensifies what they experience. I, I loved this line, all she needs and the last thing she wants are one and the same. I thought that that was a beautiful line, but I also think it's too vague for the agent that that the author needs to spell that out a little bit more so that the agent knows what that really means. Cece will be cheering on the specificity element here. So perfectly agree with that. Okay, so can you give us an indication of what was in the opening pages? In the opening pages, main character Hayden has just arrived in town and she is in a cab being driven to her neighborhood, her hometown. She's been gone for five years. We're not sure why. And as she's approaching her house, she's having all sorts of feelings about seeing the house come into view, what it looks like. And as she approaches the door, she's also noticing things that have changed about her home since she's been away. 
She opens the door. Her mom greets her, folds her into a hug, peppers her with questions about her, her trip. And as they're hanging up coats and getting ready, her mom says, oh, yeah, so-and-so's coming, your brother, your sister, and Ryan Joseph. And Hayden you know, is, is floored. She had no idea that her Ryan Joseph was going to be at Thanksgiving dinner. Wonderful. Thank you. Now, my first question there is, if we don't know why she's been away for five years, is it being planted as a curiosity seed that makes us super curious that we want to keep turning the pages? Or is it very vague and it just kind of confuses us? Because for our listeners, whenever there's something we don't know, we want it to be something that we don't know on purpose because the author is withholding that information, but they've dropped clues so that we're like, ooh, this is interesting. I wonder why she's been away. What is the mystery here? And I'm going to keep turning pages so that I can find out. We don't want it to be like, oh, well, she hasn't been away, but nothing really has been alluded to. And we're kind of confused about this. So as you discuss, you know, your assessment of the pages, that's something I'm immediately interested in. That's something I was really interested in as well. I immediately wondered why she'd been gone for five years and then why she made the decision to come back. When you have your opening pages, you do not want to steep them in backstory. I think that there's a real opportunity here for the writer to offer just one or two breadcrumbs. It can be as one sentence about you know, the reason she left and the reason she's coming back. And it it doesn't have to explain everything, but it can drop that little curiosity seed so that the readers know there's going to be more of an explanation and we're going to find that out over time. Um, and it also just keeps the reader really interested. Like that, that's a really fascinating thing that, that this character has done. I thought that there were two other opportunities here in these opening pages. There there was a lot of strengths as well, which I noted and your Kofi subscribers will see, including I loved the way that the author described how the house had changed over time, because that also showed time passing. And also, you know, we all have this idea that when we leave town, everything is going to just completely pause without us gone. But life has been moving on without her and her parents have been moving on too. So I thought she did that really effectively. For me, the opportunities are, you know, as the character's coming to see the house and the neighborhood, she's filled with a lot of anxiety. And she describes the house as sort of intimidating and even uses the word estate. So I'm imagining that her, whoever's going to open the door is going to be menacing, you know, kind of a scary character. And Hayden opens the door to find a, a mother character that to me was so warm and, you know, enfolded Hayden into a long embrace. And the, the only thing that was annoying about her was all the questions she was sort of throwing her way, questions about her trip and is she hungry? And that just felt incongruent to the way that the house was described. In some in some cases, that can be a nice surprise, but because we haven't been told anything about why she left, it didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand why the character had such a feeling of foreboding as she came to the house. So I think there's some opportunities there to either shift that or help us understand why she left. You know, again, that kind of goes back to the breadcrumbs I talked about. As I started to think about how I would structure these opening pages, I think the biggest thing is there's an opportunity to have the character Hayden, rather than showing her reacting to being told Ryan's coming, having her react to him actually arriving. So 
I'm imagining, you know, as we talk about, is this starting in the right place? I imagined the opening pages starting. Everyone's in the house. They're all getting ready to sit down at Thanksgiving meal. All the siblings are there. It's chaotic. She already says this is a chaotic family. This gives the, the writer an opportunity to sort of uh, allow the reader to see what's frustrating and annoying about her family and these characters. Everyone's, you know, someone's putting the sweet potatoes, someone's pulling out this. And the whole time Hayden's wondering, why is there an extra seat at the table? And she keeps asking, who, where is this? And, and as she's asking, She's also planting those breadcrumbs. This is why I don't come back. No one cares about me. Da, da, da. You know, like that allows us to see these family dynamics in play. She goes to sit down. He walks in and we see her reaction to him being there, not being told he's going to be there. And then that allows the writer to move into what she does with him sitting there. Does she stand up and run out because she cannot be near him? Does she have to sit through this meal? And are they both shocked? You know, and so I think that that there's a way to possibly shift those opening pages to build that chaos, build that that family structure, let us see it in play. And that's that might be what I would do. I love that suggestion because remember when you begin with the character by themselves, all you have is the character in their thoughts, in this interiority, which is fine if you're doing that really, really well and building tons of curiosity seeds, etc., etc. But I really like that suggestion. And perhaps for the author, they were going, oh, I don't want to begin by introducing so many different characters at once. But remember, you don't have to name every character. You could just talk about the chaos of the, you know, my brother passes the whatever, the, my niece does this, my nephew does this. You don't have to throw a whole bunch of names at the reader for them to, you know, absorb. But but certainly I agree with you, Meg. I think I think that would be a more interesting way of of approaching that. Okay, so thank you so much for doing that critique for us. We really appreciate it. Now we're going to move on to discussing Super Bloom. So, all right, so I have a few questions that I want to, to throw at you. Because I was lucky enough to see the evolution of this manuscript, you know, I saw it when you were a student, I saw it when you submitted to the podcast, and I remember something that was constantly tricky was that we were not loving the main character in the beginning. She was just kind of mean, we didn't understand her hurt, we weren't getting on board with her humor, and that was something that was constantly a problem. And in this version, you absolutely nailed it. From the first page, it was just, I found Joan to be funny, I found her to be cynical, I could relate to her, I found her to be vulnerable, I was immediately intrigued. So for listeners out there who are writing these kinds of characters, who are a bit more prickly, who are maybe emotionally closed off in the beginning, who part of their character arc, they need to become more likable as they thaw out. You know, what is your advice to them? How did you approach getting Joan just right from those early drafts to this draft? Thank you, Bianca. That was that, that was a long slog, you know. It and it it honestly ended up being just a few fairly subtle tweaks to make her character more likable, more understandable, and but to keep the humor to to allow her to be a bit of a curmudgeon. She's in the lowest place she's been, you know. She's lost her the love of her life. 
very early on in their in their courtship and everyone's telling her to move on and she's about to get fired and she is she doesn't love massage she's doing she's doing a bad job at work so things are not good for her so i wanted to be able to allow some of that curmudgeonliness to come through while also allowing the reader to understand where she's coming from and to see that that she's not always like this. So I actually did a couple things. One was that in her in her dialogue, she starts to tick through a few of the clients, massage clients she's had over the day. And two of them she's sort of, you know, frustrated with, but a third client she has a lot of tenderness toward. And being able to describe that person in that way and have Joan sort of worry about her and wish that she could give her more time on the table allows the reader to see that she has kindness underneath some of the prickliness that she has and that she can exude that tenderness and warmth toward other people. Another moment in that first chapter is I, I have her say to herself, you know, maybe I could, maybe I could change. Maybe I could find my way back to what I loved about massage I could be kinder to my my clients and kinder to myself. And she says, my my old love, Samuel, wouldn't like this version of me, and I don't either. And that little change, little tweak, allowed the reader to be like, oh, okay, so we're not going to get this version of her the whole way. We're, we're going to see a change. I can be on the ride for someone who's prickly and funny and, and also know that the humor piece was a learning curve for me. And I, I really had to learn the art of punching up, not down when it comes to humor. And so having Joan, I think early, early, early drafts, you know, Joan is almost, you know, making comments and, and making fun of, you know, her, her clients and people who are in a vulnerable position on her table. So I had to really shift some of that humor so that Joan is is punching up or punching in toward herself and, and looking at the hierarchy of power. So that was also little subtle shifts that I made that that were really key to getting the reader on board. Those were excellent changes. And, you know, as somebody, I hate going for massages, not because I hate, you know, being massaged because I don't need it because my muscles are always tense. I love a massage, but I'm always sitting there thinking what is going through this massage therapist's head when they are having to touch my oiled up body. And I'm going, I would hate this bloody job. So I'm sure they had this job as well. And then when, you know, when I originally read your opening pages, it just confirmed this for me. And I was like, Oh my God, this is terrible. Massage therapist hates us, etc. But the way you tweaked that was brilliant because we originally were in her head as she was massaging someone who was being like a bitch to her and was being mean, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And now you begin it after her day shift. And just for our listeners, I want to read the opening two sentences, which are amazing. I harbor a secret fantasy to go apeshit at work. Maybe today's the day. And then it starts with my shift is over and I'm waiting at the reception desk. And then she can kind of look back at the client she had. But I really think that that was like a genius shift that you made and knowing that you know she's really going through a rough time right now she doesn't like herself the way she is right now helps us get on board with that as opposed to just going wow this woman's super mean I don't know that I want to spend however many pages with her so so you did an amazing job there of of reworking that in the eight years 
that you were working on this book. Now, something else that I want to have a look at is your amazing descriptions. You had these lines. There was one, I wish I'd underlined it. It was about someone's one tooth sticking out like a dancer leaning forward in a chorus line or something like that. God, when I got to that line, I laughed so hard and it was just, it was just one little line, but it was so utterly perfect. And you had many descriptions like this throughout the book. So how do you approach those kinds of descriptions? Was it that that description first started as a paragraph and you whittled it away to one perfect line or, or how do you, how do you approach them? Oh, thank you so much. That is so nice. First of all, I have one crooked tooth that sticks out. So I just sort of looked at my my own mouth and was like, what does that look like? <laughs> it's a dancer, you know, wondering what everyone else is doing down the chorus line because she doesn't have the step right. So, you know, when I when I work on my descriptions, I really force myself to not pick the lowest hanging fruit. And that slows me down, but ultimately allows me to come up with something that's either really clever or just, you know, outside the norm or funny, ties back to something earlier in the chapter. And it often requires me to sort of stop writing, stand up go to my window, stare out the window. I look probably look like I'm like lurking, you know, at my neighbors and they're like, why is she always standing there? But I'm thinking of these creative descriptions, you know, and one thing that I think is really key when you are trying to, to write creatively is also not pulling your reader out of setting and not pulling your reader out of what they're reading so that the metaphor, you know, the way you're describing something is so jarring that, and it's so, you know, creative, so outside the norm that it actually stops the reader and it, it pulls them out of the book, pulls them out of setting. So you have this tricky balance of, okay, everyone describes something this way. So I'm going to try this, but now it's so wildly, beyond that, that it doesn't work. So you have to find this sort of middle path. And I, I definitely spend a lot of time thinking of those and, and making myself work really hard to, to reach them. Yeah, well, you really nailed them. They were, they were brilliant. So one last question is writing a book within a book, right? So Joan is busy writing a book. And so we see excerpts of some of the things that she's writing. And that's really tough to do. I feel like, you know, myself in the same instance, I would have just have glossed over what those pages were. I just would have been, you know, she is busy writing something and just gone, oh, right now she's writing about this or, or, or that or whatever the case may be is and not put the pages in. So let's talk about that very deliberate decision on your part to include them? How how much do you know to include? What don't you include, etc.? Because, you know, novels for me, they work so well within a novel, within a novel, or books like Station Eleven, etc. What was your approach to that? And what was your editor's take on that when, when you were being edited? For a long time, I didn't have the, the book within the book. So for, for listeners, my character Joan ends up beginning to write her own novel, which is called Snow Globe in the book Superbloom. And I had a writing group that Bianca helped me match up with. And I was taking my pages to my writing group and they were all saying, these just are boring. You know, you're, you're describing what Joan is writing and we want to see what she's actually writing. And my, my friend Carly, hi Carly, was like, I, I think you should write these pages. 
tell any writer who's been working on a novel for years to go play on the page and they will have a conniption fit. That's the last thing I wanted to do. I was like, no, I was like such a petulant, you know, like, you know, child. And I went back to my, to my computer and was like, oh God, okay, what, how would Joan write this book? I began to play with it and write the first chapter. And actually it was such a gift and it allowed me to do a couple of really key things. First of all, it allowed me to take this character, Samuel, who was Joan's lost love, who has died and take his characteristics and things that had happened with him and give them to a, a fictional character in, in Joan's book and allow me to tell things about Samuel without getting steeped in pages and pages of backstory, without having the reader have to read tons of chapters of a character they know has, has already died. You know, that's that's hard to do. So it allowed me to, to sort of imbue that into characters that were very much alive and well. It also allowed me to show Joan's chops, you know, how, who, what type of writer is she? And, and the, those pages are just slightly different than um, then Snow Globe, they have a more romance feel to them. So they allowed me to, to do that. And I also wanted to use them quite sparingly. I had Cece in my head, actually, as I worked on them, because there was one podcast where she was like, look, a novel within a novel is one of the hardest things to pull off. You have to not only do you have to get your readers interested in your world, you now have to get them interested in a new world. And that's often really hard to get readers to buy into. So I knew I was up against quite a bit when I when I tried this. But I found that I gained so much from it and could move the story forward through these pages that it it just seemed like the the right choice for me. My editor was all in. You know, she thought this was great. I I think we had to tweak a few things. You know, for me I know that Snow Globe, as I learned so much about the romance genre, I know that Snow Globe doesn't hit all of the specific genre beats of a romance novel. So for like real diehard romance novel readers, they're going to be like, where's the such and such beat? And we talked that through, my, my editor and I, do we make sure we hit these beats to be congruent? Ultimately, we found that was going to slow the novel down too much. So we allowed it to sort of live as it as it was. Yeah, I love that. And for our listeners, that's something important to keep in mind. You know, we've got books like Save the Cat Writes a Novel, and we've got books that teach us the beats for romance novels, etc. But these are only ever suggestions. They're outlines to stick closely to or not. But some stories just don't conform to these kinds of, you know, action beats, in which case, if it doesn't work, you know, use the ones that do work, but make your own as to go along for the for the rest of them. Before we have to go, Megan, because our time is up and, and it's been so lovely chatting with you, what I would like to ask you is I sensed how frustrated you were at many points along this journey because you had been working on this for eight years. You weren't seeing the results you wanted. Then you get a writing group who's like, change things, and you're like, for the love of dog people, I've already written this so many times. And, you know, there were times that I sensed, I was I was worried that you were going to give up. And yet, you know, you absolutely didn't give up. And here you are. And with an amazing publisher who loves your book, who loves you. It is so amazing to see this book on, on Instagram, to see everybody talking about it. You know, what is it that, that kept you going? And what made you refuse to be like, okay, this is just too hard. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to walk away. 
That's a great question. And there were lots of days where I considered giving up. And, you know, you have to at some point wonder, is this the book that goes in the drawer? You know, and I had started dabbling with early pages of another novel and was bringing my attention to that. And I had to make a really, you know, decision. I think it was the fall of 2022 or 21. I can't remember, but I I said, okay, do I, do I start this next novel or do I keep up? Do I keep querying? Do I keep tweaking this? And I just couldn't let these characters go. I loved them and I felt such a connection to them and I really wanted them to see the world and I, and the world to see them. So I, I just couldn't give up and I'm so glad that I didn't because now I'm working on my second novel and just, you know, the character Joan in my book, it takes a long time for her to sort of discover and say out loud, I want to be an author. I want to be a writer. And it took a long time for me to declare that too, and to sort of take up that space. And I think once I did and allowed myself to do that, I just couldn't, I couldn't stop and I couldn't look back. So to anyone out there who's been laboring with this for so long, I completely understand and also keep going. I, you know, you often say, Bianca, that it only takes one yes. That's so true, but it also takes a yes from you every single day from the writer every day to be sitting down and working on it while you're waiting for that other yes. Excellent advice. Couldn't have said it better myself. We're going to end there because nothing else is better than that. Keep giving yourself yeses every single day, everyone out there, until you get that one external yes. Meg, thank you so, so much for joining us. For everybody, we're linking to Superbloom on our bookshop.org affiliate page. You buy the book there, you support Meg, you support the podcast, and you support an independent bookstore. Meg, we hope to have you back for book two. Thank you so much. I'd love that. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.